Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit, is in, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy and, did not, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us... Be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Paul Washer, the, the preacher and evangelist and the missionary, once said in a sermon, the most terrifying truth about God is the fact that he is good. And the reason why it's terrifying is because we are not. So this week... Uh, while I was surfing on Twitter, I ran across a person who claims to be a pastor who um, is actually unqualified for the office, but that's a different issue altogether. But they have, a, they have a large following, which a lot of popular people do. And they posted a tweet that read, Sermons should be no longer than 30 minutes. 20 minutes is best. <laughs> and should always include a story, a story, a personal story is best. Short and Sweet. Huh. Well, I read that and I felt really like, okay, maybe I'm at, I am out of step with things, right? Maybe I'm a little bit old-fashioned, right? Because I realized actually like reading that, that in the last eight years, in the last eight years, preaching 50 times a year, I have never not in one of those instances preached a sermon that was only 30 minutes long much less 20 minutes, right? I mean, Brother Keith has preached a message that was 31 minutes long, and I thought that was actually really short, but I never have. In fact, I checked. I went on SoundCloud, and I checked, right? And it wasn't even close. And and, and as I read this, I was like, man, like, how do you even do that? How is that even possible that you take a text from the Bible, right, and that you preach a sermon on that text for 30 minutes or, or less than 30 minutes? Right? And then this person says that, that you should include a personal story. And I'm like, well, there's 20 minutes right there, right? <laughs> like, how in the world 
I mean, you know, if you're going to include a personal story, how do you have time to work in the text in 30 minutes? I mean, you don't even have time to unpack anything at that point. I mean, if you think about it, like, I can do 20 minutes just as a warm-up. Right? 20 minutes is a devotion on grace and truth, and you all know that's to be true, you know? In fact, my daughter's actually reminded me when I go over 20 minutes, she goes, remember, you're not preaching a sermon, right? I'm like, okay. <laughs> right? But the fact is, 30 minutes in this room, everybody knows that by that point, we're really diving into the text, right? In fact, this congregation right here pretty much has a handle, you know, on the timing of the sermons I preach. In fact, you pretty much know what time it is by where I am in the message, usually, right? I mean, the thing is, is like, and, and what you know, I watch you. Like, you know when it's time to pull out your notes and start writing things down. You know that when I'm going to go from the introduction to reading the text, when to pull out your Bible and start reading. In fact, most of you know when it's a good time to slip away and go to the bathroom because you're like, oh, he's just in the illustration part of it. I can slip away and not really miss anything right now, right? <laughs> you guys know me, right? And you know the time, and you know, and, and I know that you know that when I'm about to wrap up and go to application because I see you, you all start folding your Bibles up and your papers and start putting things away, right? <laughs> I mean, you all know how I preach, and you know, all know how long I, I preach. And you all know what to expect from me. And you know coming here that I'm going to be preaching a little longer than 30 minutes. In fact, here's the thing as I realized. If, if I was only preached like a 20-minute message, right? And then I was to say you were loved, you were prayed for. Most of you would like rub your eyes and, and blink and look at each other and go, wait a minute, did I just fall asleep? <laughs> I feel like I just closed my eyes and like, like it was over. I missed something, you know? I can't even imagine a message that only lasts 20 or 30 minutes. But by, by all the likes and the comments this person got on Twitter, it seems like a lot of people agreed with them. In fact, there's one guy who said, man, I preach about average 45 minutes. And they were like, whoa, that's way too long. And I started feeling kind of bad. I'm thinking, man, gosh, 45 minutes. I think that's a pretty good target to shoot for. But, but then I realized I shouldn't feel bad. In fact, I actually have a new perspective. Because by this person's logic... Right? I'm actually going the extra mile for you all, if you think about this. Because instead of giving you one good 30-minute sermon every Sunday, I'm actually giving you two. Right? <laughs> right? You're getting two for a price of one. And, and, and if, if the best sermons are only 20 minutes long, then you're getting three. Right? <laughs> See how blessed you are? <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Well, I'm poking fun here, and I, and, and, and I want you to know, I am conscious like, of the fact that I do go long. In fact, I think about it a lot. Like, in fact, there are times where I think I get done here, and I go, hey, Carson, I think I got done under an hour. He goes, no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? And, 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 I'm, you know, and there are times I'm like, why does this take so long to get through? But, but you know why it takes so long? It's because I love the Word of God, and it's important to me. And, and it's because every text that we go through, every text that we read presents all of us with so much to think about and to talk about. The Word of God is inexhaustible. It's an inexhaustible treasure for us. There's so much important stuff in every single text for us to, to cover. In every text, God has so much for us to learn. That's why it takes so long. Right? It, 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 it takes time to get through the details Right. I mean, think about this. This is the 79th message in this series on Mark. 79th, with an average length of 55 minutes. I checked that too, right? right? So what that means is we have about 79 hours of preaching over the span of two years 
in this one sermon alone. And believe me, like this could be, we could have gone on another two years. Like every single one of these texts we've gone to, we could, I could do two or three sermons on. In fact, now I understand why it took John Piper six years to get to the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. Six years. And, and I really think, man, he probably could have taken another six to, to finish it up. Right? The Word of God is so rich and so full, and there's so many beautiful and important truths to unpack. The Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes in us the things that we need to grow through. The Word of God, right, as, as, as Paul says, is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is life itself. The Word of God is transformative. The Word of God is the foundation of our faith and our relationship with God. The Word of God has so much for us. And if there is anything that we need more of in our lives today, it's more of the Word of God. And the reason why it takes so much time week after week is because my aim is to present to you the truth of God's Word to the fullest that I possibly can. Right? So that it will have its full effect in your life. You see, a sermon isn't just something that you listen to. Right? A sermon is supposed to be something that changes you because you've come in contact with God's Word. In fact, somebody asked me, what's the difference between a Bible study and the difference between you know, uh, a sermon? And I said, well, in a Bible study, well, the difference really is in how you leave. In a Bible study, you should leave learning something. Right? In a sermon, you should leave worshiping the Lord. You should be worshiping God for His grace and His, his goodness. And I praise the Lord for that little guy over there too. <laughs> that is my aim. That is my aim is to preach the Word to you, whatever age, so that you leave here with your hearts filled full with the wonder and majesty of God that moves you to worship Him, not just today, but all week long. And so my aim isn't to try to fit a message into a certain time constraint. My aim is to proclaim to you the richness of the goodness of God's Word. My aim is, is to make much of our Savior, Jesus Christ. My aim is to help you to fall in love more and more with Christ and, and to leave you with a sense that you were confirmed in your faith. You walk out of here knowing who you belong to, growing in that relationship with him. Now, the reason why I mention this is because this text today, there's a lot to get through here. In fact, there's more than you might even imagine. And, and there's more that I can even cover in one sermon. I'm going to do my best to cover what I can here, and hopefully we can get it done. If not, we might have to come back to this. But uh, I'm going to do my best to give you the really important stuff. So just know we won't be done in 30 minutes, okay? All right. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14. And, uh, and before we jump in here, let me just kind of get, set up the context here, because this is, again, one more of those texts that if you're a Christian, you're going to be familiar with. You're, you're going to know what this is about. Right, this is a text, if you're a Christian, you have read before, or you've at least heard about, you know, Jesus is praying in the garden and he is troubled, right? In fact, many of you remember Luke's version of this where Jesus is so troubled, he sweats drops of blood. It's a very graphic thing. It's hard to forget those details, right? So this is something that we're familiar with, but, but the thing is, is we can't let our familiarity keep us from thinking about the context of what's happening here. Right? Because the truth is, if you don't understand or keep the broader context of Mark in view, we're going to miss some, some important things. And, and so here are some things that we need to keep in mind as we approach this text. 
And, and the first of that is, is there a lot of running themes in, in Mark's gospel? Hopefully you've kind of caught onto that. As we've gone through here, there are things that Mark has been developing and he continues to come back to over and over again. And there's some important things we're going to see re-examined here in, um, in this text. Number one is the divinity of, of Christ, right? The first thing that we're going to come back to and see is the divinity of Christ. From the opening Words of the gospel, you know, Jesus Christ is being portrayed by Mark as the Son of God, that he is divine. He's God in the flesh. And this is a truth that we see over and over again, and we're going to see that in this text in his resolve to continue to do what God's calling him to do. Number two is the true humanity of Christ. Right? Not only is Christ fully divine in God, but he's also fully man. He, he has a full divine nature and a full human nature as well which means Jesus is one of us. One of the most important truths that we can hold on to, right? And Mark has been emphasizing that point since his baptism, that he's identifying himself with us because he's one of us. And we really saw this truth emphasized recently, but we're going to see that even more in this text today. And then number, number three is the, uh, the, the theme of true discipleship. The book of Mark is about discipleship and, and following Jesus and growing as a disciple in Christ. And this text, we're going to see Jesus as the greatest example of, of being a disciple and surrendering himself to the will of the Father. And then the fourth theme that we're going to see in this text is the spiritual blindness of the disciples. We have seen that multiple times, but we're going to see it again here. It's going to be, it's going to be very clear, right? The truth is God, by his grace, has chosen these men, not because of anything that they're doing or that they're worthwhile, right? But they have, you know, and they, they, they do have some spiritual insight, as we see Peter has had the, the, the insight to declare Jesus is the Messiah. But we've seen all throughout Mark that they are very, they're very dull. They just don't spiritually get their heads wrapped around what Jesus is saying to them. So they're still partially spiritually blind. And then number five, right, is, is the theme that we're going to see here is the overarching theme that influences everything that Mark is doing. And, and it should not come to any surprise to you, but it's the theme of God's sovereignty. Every single section of, of Mark almost seems to, to proclaim the sovereignty of God, and we're going to see that also in this, in this text. All right? If there's an inescapable truth about Mark that's driving through the gospel narrative is that God is completely in control and he is sovereign. And uh, we're going to see that continue. And then, and so these are the five, you know, um, themes that, 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 that get touched on this text. But there's one more theme that Mark has been developing, right, that's really beginning to grow momentum and that we've touched on in the past, but will become really the dominant theme of this text and it's going to set the stage for the climax to come because this theme gets to the heart of the gospel and the heart of why Jesus came in the first place. And that theme is the wrath of God, right? Which, which, which takes place in this text. Um, and, and really, if we don't really have a handle on the wrath of God, what's going to happen in this particular story is not really going to make sense to us. We're going to see Jesus emotionally distraught and we're going to wonder why unless we understand it's about the wrath of God. And so that is the thematic context. Those are the things that, that Mark has been developing, and we're going to see those grow in this text. And then we have um, the narrative context, or where are we in the story? 
And, and this is the major, like final major turning point in the story. This is right before things head to their final climax. You see, Jesus came into the story as a nobody from nowhere, preaching the gospel and calling people to repent and believe. And then he calls his followers to them and he tells them to, be, to follow him because he's going to make them fishers of men. He continues then to preach the gospel throughout the region of Galilee, and he does so, he, and, and he performs incredible miracles, healing people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, um, and then his fame and popularity spreads all over the region, and even Gentiles come to him for help, and he, and he heals and does many things for them. And then religious leaders of Judea find out about him, and they come and they start pestering him and finding out, is he really the Messiah? And then three and a half years later, after all of this, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem for his final Passover. And, and on his way there, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He heals blind Bartimaeus. Right? And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he deliberately, as we've been talking about, confirms what everybody's been thinking about him, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. Right? He is signaling that he is the king by his riding a, a donkey into uh, the city in fulfillment of specific prophecy. And, and the city right, at that time is, is electric with anticipation because they know, they know what it means. It's okay, we can wait. <laughs> Rick can tell you about that. <laughs> All right. And the city is electric with anticipation because they know what it means for him to be the king and to come there. But, but then after arriving, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, right? But he doesn't actually physically ascend to David's throne, though, as people expected him. He doesn't organize the rebellion against the Romans that they were hoping that he would do. Instead, he actually comes not just as the king, but his role as a prophet. And he comes and he pronounces judgment against, against the city, against, um, against the nation of Israel, and against the leaders of Israel, who then end up wanting to kill him because of his judgment against them. And then he declares very clearly to his disciples how this judgment is going to come to pass. He predicts the utter destruction of the temple and the city, and then he promises his return. And then, after that, he comes to the Passover meal. Then he comes to the Passover meal. Jesus celebrates his, this festival with his disciples, and he institutes the Lord's table, which signals a promise of the new covenant that would be inaugurated with his, his blood. You see, Jesus is foreshadowing the fact that he is going to be the sacrificial lamb. And also, as the high priest, he's going to make atonement for his people. And so what we see in this short set of text, he is the king, he is the prophet, and he is the high priest that we are all looking for. Right? And during the Passover meal, Jesus predicts one of them is going to betray, them, betray him to his death. And then after the meal is over, as they walk towards the Mount of Olives, he tells them that they're all going to fall away and abandon him, to which they all said, no, we're not going to do that. And that's where we ended up last week. And now we, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, Gethsemane um, is, a, is a Jewish word that means olive press or oil press, right? And it's on the area, it's in an area on the slopes of Mount, the Mount of Olives. And it was one of Jesus's favorite places to go and, and, and to have quiet time. In fact, the Gospel of John makes that clear, that that's where one of Jesus's favorite places to find solitude. 
And it was called the Garden of Gethsemane in, in John. But, but really it had, it was an olive orchard, right, that had an olive press for producing olive oil. It's a very common thing in that time. And it was believed that this garden was also surrounded by walls on every side. And so it was a very good place for Jesus to go find quiet solitude somewhere, right? A place to find security and privacy. And it seems like ideal, right? I mean, it's a walled-in garden, you know, place that's serene and quiet, right, where Jesus could go alone, which is exactly why Jesus is there. He's looking for a place to have quiet and solitude so he can spend some time with, with the Father. And, and the truth is, Jesus, he knows that right now, that, his, that in a few short hours, he's going to be arrested. In a few short hours, he will be hauled before the Sanhedrin, and then he will be brought before Pilate, and then he will be beaten and nailed to the cross. Right? The, the hour for which he had come into the world was upon him. And before he was, he was to face that, before he was to actually encounter that, Jesus came into the garden so that he can get alone with God in prayer. Which reminds us of another theme that we find throughout the Gospel of Mark that he's been developing, and that is Jesus' commitment and reliance upon prayer. We've seen that over and over again. Mark chapter 1, just after the Sabbath, uh, where Jesus... um, uh, heals or, or casts out a demon, and then he ends up preaching, and then he spends the night healing people at Peter's house. What does he do the next morning? He gets up early and he goes and prays. In fact, in uh, Mark chapter one verse thirty-five, it says, "In rising very early in the morning, while he was while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and he prayed." Jesus made a point, even in his busy schedule, to pray. And then again in Mark chapter 6, Jesus preaches all day, and then he feeds 5,000 people right, with two small fish and and five loaves of bread. And after all that's over, and after he sends them all home, he sends his disciples across the the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And what does he do? He finds an opportunity to go and get alone with God and to pray, right? In uh, in, in verse 46 of... uh, of Mark chapter 6, it says, After he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And then again, we see this in the, in the same text here. He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane after a long, hectic week in Jerusalem, Passion Week, right? And just before his arrest, he, he makes a point to spend time alone with God the Father in prayer. And the thing that we need to realize is that Jesus, he doesn't just pray to be an example for us. Now, he He is an example for us, but that's not the only reason why he prayed. He prayed because he needed it. He prayed because he needed to be close to God the Father in prayer. He needed it. The first time that we see him pray, he's about to expand his mission into a wider area. After a long day, he's spending time with the Lord, you know, gathering strength for the road ahead. The second time we see him pray, he's about to walk on water and he's, he's about to face several tests with Pharisees who are going to continue to come and harass him. And this time we see Jesus is going to face the climax of his redemptive work that's going to require his suffering and death. Jesus wasn't just praying just to be an example for us. He was praying because he needed it. He needed it. Jesus needed that time with the Father. Jesus needed that intimacy. He needed the comfort. He needed the strength. 
And the first takeaway, if, if you can guess where I'm going with this, is, is one that we've talked about before. If Jesus needed to spend time in prayer, how much more do you? I mean, if that's all that you heard today and left out of here and you remembered to apply to your life, if, if there's only one thing that you got out of this sermon that would change the course of your life forever, it's that truth right there that you take seriously. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more than do you? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. The king of the universe, the perfect spotless lamb of God in his humanity, as perfect as he was, still needed to get alone with God in prayer. If that is the case, so do you and so do I. And I know this doesn't come as a surprise to any of you. It's not like I'm giving you new information today. We all need that time in prayer, but, but examine your own prayer life this last week, this last month, and ask yourself, Am I really spending the time I need in prayer with God? Especially now when things are hectic and stressful and frustrating and upsetting. What I've seen lately is many Christians in this very troubling time are worked up and stressed out and frustrated and upset. Right? And when things get anxious and difficult, there's a tendency for us to jump into worry mode to jump into problem-solving mode, to jump into I-need-to-control-all-the-outcomes mode, jumping into the what-if, the what-if, the what-if, the what-if mode. You know what I'm talking about. Rather than taking a step back and finding the time to get alone with the sovereign Lord of the universe who has given you the privilege to come to Him before His throne at any time, anywhere, casting your cares upon Him, Rather than doing that, we will internalize and worry and post about it on social media and, and, and talk about it and stay up late worrying about it instead of praying about it. That's, that's what we need to do. If Jesus needed, in the time of his great distress, needed time with the Lord, so do we. And notice that's exactly what he does. He spends the night talking. He doesn't spend the night talking about how he's going to deal with what's going to happen. He doesn't spend the night ruminating to himself, worrying, right? No, he gets alone with the source of his strength, the source of all the answers, God the Father. He spends the night with him in prayer. And the truth is, if Jesus needed prayer, so do you. And the truth is, if Jesus could make the time for prayer, so can you. So can I. And so they come into the garden and he tells the, his disciples to sit and watch while he prays. The idea here is that they're in a walled-in garden and for privacy's sake and security's sake, he just asks his disciples to kind of keep a lookout. That's, what he, that's why he says what he says. And then he says, then, then it says, then he took him with him Peter, James, and John began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my, sorrow, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the even to death, remain here and watch. Once again, Jesus separates from the group, Peter, James, and John. And he does so for a special reason. And, and, and this is something that we're familiar with because Jesus has done this multiple times on a number of occasions. This is another theme that we've seen, right? Like when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, who did he take with him? 
Peter, James, and John. When he went up on the mountain where he was transfigured, who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. We see over and over again this recurring theme, Jesus spending time with these three in order to show them something very important, even though that they're still very dull and don't always get it. That's why, and this is what we see here, Jesus separates these men from the rest of the group in order to be near them. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've read that, but I never really stopped long enough to ask the question, why? Why does he want these men near him? Notice it says that he became greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus says, my soul is, soul is very sorrowful, even to death. In fact, the words, what he's saying here is, is the emotion that he's feeling, the sorrow, the, the, the anxiety he's feeling, the distress he's feeling is so strong that it feels like it's going to kill him. That's the best way to render what he's saying, right? That, that, that what he's feeling feels like it could lead him to death. Have you ever been so stressed out and worried that you feel like you could just die from that? That's kind of like the picture. Right? The point that I want you to see here is Jesus wanted these three men to be near him during this time for two important reasons. Number one, Jesus wanted them to recognize the turmoil that he was going through and to watch with him as he prayed about his impending suffering. He wanted them to see that this is, he's not being dramatic here, that he's actually going through it. He wanted them to see right, that he is in deep anguish. They've never seen him like this before anyway. He wanted them to see what's going on. That's the first reason. But number two, and this one really struck me. I read a commentary that really kind of opened my eyes to this. Number two, Jesus is seeking their fellowship and encouragement as he faces the most difficult experience of his human life. Sometimes we forget that Jesus is fully human being. He's fully man, right? This is what we're seeing. Jesus is full humanity on display here. Jesus internally is suffering real human emotions. He is anxious, he is deeply upset. He wants to be around his closest friends. Let that sink in for a moment. If Jesus in his humanity needed other people around him for fellowship and encouragement during a time of deep stress, so do you. So do I. That's why I say over and over again, we as God's people need each other. This extended lockdown where people are not in each other's presence and avoiding one another is not healthy. We need each other. God's people need to be together. This, by the way, is why we're working so hard to keep the church open. Because God's people need to be together, especially now. Especially during uncertain times. Especially during stressful times. We need to be in each other's physical presence. We need to comfort one another. We need to encourage one another. We just need to hear each other's voices to, to understand we're not alone. We need to worship together. Jesus, in his humanity, wanted his disciples to be near him to help bear this emotional burden. That's why he invites them to come with him, to be with him, and to pray with him. And his humanity, and Jesus' humanity, he needed them. And again, I have to say, if Jesus needed them, 
so do you. We need each other. This, by the way, is why Christian unity is so important. This is why it's so important that we settle scores between us as Christians. This is why we don't carry around burdens or grudges. This is why we forgive each other. This is why we prefer one another. I don't know if you realize, but how many times Paul says, one another, one another, one another. We're to love one another. We're to bear each other's burdens. We're to be patient with one another. Why? Because we need each other. And that has its roots in Christ himself. Jesus in his humanity wanted his disciples to be near because he needed them. But notice what happens after he prays for a little while. It says, he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I mean, according to some preachers, it should be 20 minutes, but... Jesus asked them to be with him and to watch him, to watch him pray and to be praying with him and for him. But then he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And contextually, what we see is all the disciples themselves were sleeping. It wasn't just one of them. They were all falling asleep. But for some reason, he singles out Peter as an example. This is probably because Peter seemed to be the natural leader of the ten. Right? He seems to always rise to the, to the top of leadership. But I think more specifically, it's probably because of his boast at dinner, right? Because he claimed that he was willing to go wherever Jesus led and do what Jesus told him to do, and that he was even willing to go to prison and even to death with Jesus. So much for that self-confidence and bravado, he can't even stay awake for an hour at Jesus' request, his emotional request, none at that. Now, why is this detail so important? Again, because I've read through that and just went right past it. Why is that detail so important? Why is, it, why is it a big deal that they fell asleep? Well, it's important for two reasons. Number one, the first thing is that it demonstrates the continued spiritual dullness of the disciples. It continues to demonstrate that they don't get it. Jesus has told them that he's going to be betrayed. He told them that they would abandon him. And he brings them to the garden to pray. And, he's, and, and, and Jesus obviously is emotional and he's elevated and he's in distress. And he tells them as much. And he says, watch and pray. right? And, and, and they hear him because he's only like a stone's throw away. They hear him praying this urgent prayer. And what do they do? They fall asleep. They can't stay awake. The importance of this, the importance and the urgency of Jesus' request has escaped them. Now, granted, it's probably after midnight. It's pro- you know, it's probably late. But you would think that if they truly understood what Jesus was saying here, if they understood the urgency of what Jesus was getting at here, that they would feel a little bit more amped up, a little bit more alert. I mean, we've all been there. When, we, when there's an emergency, suddenly you can shift gears and you can be awake for many, many more hours. You would think that if they understood, they would care enough to be awake, but they don't. They're still oblivious to what's happening around them. They don't even realize the depth of what he's going through, even though he's trying to explain it to them. And we've seen this dullness throughout the Gospel of Mark. If you remember all that section about spiritual blindness and, and, and the two blind men. The second thing is we see demonstrated here, this is the one that actually... This is the one that kind of really breaks my heart a little bit once you understand the implications. What we're seeing demonstrated here 
is their emotional abandonment of Jesus. He's asking them to mostly be there, and they basically abandon him, which ultimately is what? Foreshadowing the physical abandonment that he told them that they were going to do. Jesus told them, you're going to abandon me. And they're like, no, we're not going to. But then Jesus directly asked them to be with him emotionally and to watch over him while he's praying in a time of distress. And what do they do? They fail to do that. They emotionally abandon him. Again, it's a picture of what's to come. So then Jesus says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And I'm going to tell you right now, if there's a part of the text that really baffled me for a long time, it's this one. And the reason why it was baffling to me is because I've heard some crazy stuff about what that text means. I mean, I've heard some really crazy stuff of how to interpret that text and apply that text. In fact, I heard someone say that this is a warning that if you pray at nighttime, you better make sure that you stay awake while you're praying because you don't want to fall asleep praying. That falling asleep praying is bad. I'm, 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 and I'm not kidding. I mean, I've heard that like from, from somebody that I thought was a serious preacher at one point in my life, right? And they're like, if you fall asleep praying, that's because you're irreverent towards God. And because of that, you could fall into temptation. That's how they interpreted that text. Seriously, that's exactly how, you know. And believe me, I've heard some really off-the-wall stuff about this. That, by the way, is why the context of the text is so important to us. The truth is, the word temptation here actually can mean a test. And this is really why context, again, is important. Because, because what test has Jesus already warned Peter about facing soon? What is the test? What is the temptation that he's going to face? It's the test of his loyalty to Jesus. He's already, tell him, he's already told him that you're going to fail me, and he says, no, I won't. Right? He's already warned Peter that you're going to abandon me. Right? That's the temptation that he's about to face. Watch me and be with me emotionally and pray so you don't fail the test. You said you won't fail, but you're already showing signs of weakness just because you're already falling asleep. That's, it. That's the essence of what Jesus is driving at here. And in light of that then, what Jesus says next makes a whole lot more sense. He says the spirit is willing, but then the flesh is weak. Your spirit, your heart is telling me and telling you that you have what it takes not to abandon me. But your flesh is already like betraying you and showing that you're weaker than you think you are. You can't even keep your eyes open for an hour. How are you going to stay strong and not abandon me? So again, he says to, to stay awake and to watch. And again, he goes away and he prayed saying the, the same words. And again, he comes and finds them sleeping again. It says, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Jesus goes and he, and he prays again. He comes back and he finds them asleep a second time and they don't even know what to say. In fact, they're probably embarrassed by this point, you would think, right? For all of their boasting about never abandoning Jesus, they for some reason can't stay awake to comfort him in a time of great need. Their flesh is indeed very weak. And then Jesus rebukes them and goes back and prays a third time. And what does he find? <laughs> the same thing. They all fall asleep again. Three times Jesus tells them to stay awake and watch as he prays. And three times these men fall asleep, oblivious to the, to the depth of what Jesus is doing and what he's going through. 
This confirms, I think, what we've been talking about, the spiritual dullness of these disciples. I mean, think about this. This event actually is where, where, where Jesus says to watch and pray, right? And his disciples fall asleep three times is an allusion to the three times Jesus clearly said to them that he would be handed over and he would be killed and raised again. And they didn't understand or they ignored what he was saying. This is a direct allusion to that same issue. But more importantly, not only is it an allusion to their spiritual blindness, but more importantly, this event right here is a foreshadow of Peter's threefold denial of Christ. Because he doesn't deny Jesus one time, he denies him three. Peter emotionally abandoning Jesus in this moment three times is a direct allusion to Peter three times physically denying Christ that was going to happen in just a few short hours. You see, nothing happens by accident. The fact is he cannot stay awake to comfort his friend. He can't stay awake to, to support his, his leader, the one he said he would die with. How can he possibly have the strength to be arrested with Jesus and to die alongside Jesus? By falling asleep three times, he's proving that he's going to fail the test and that he will do exactly what Jesus said, deny him. Now, the last time Jesus, he finds them sleeping, he doesn't tell them to pray anymore. In fact, he asks, he, instead he says, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. We are now at the place where Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested. And so... The time for, for, for sleep is, is up, right? There's no more sleeping. There's no more words of encouragement that Jesus is going to have to offer them. They're going to be tested in just a few moments. But before we dive in, into that, let's come back to what's actually happening with Jesus. Because we've looked so far at the impact of all of this on the disciples and what this tells us about them. But what about Jesus? Have you ever thought to yourself, why in the world is Jesus acting this way? Why is he so emotional at this point? I mean, throughout the Gospels, we see, we see Jesus is always in control. I mean, you think about it. He's always in control. He's always stable. He's never fearful. He might be angry, right? We've seen him angry, but we never see him fearful. We never see him afraid. In fact, his disciples woke him up in the middle of, of a storm that was threatening to, to sink the ship. And what does he do? He, he speaks to the wind and the waves and they calm down. And, and he says, why, are you, why, why do you have no faith? We go through the gospel and we see that Jesus is always confident and always in control. And we see that he is sovereign. There's nothing outside of his ability to, to control. But in this text... We see something about Jesus that we've never seen before. We see something else. I mean, in, in, in John, we've seen Jesus weep because of compassion for his friends, but we've never seen this. Notice it says they began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is a double expression of an emotion. And the reason why that, that happens that way in the Greek is because it's really emphasizing, right, that he is the epitome of really distressed he is the epitome of what it means to be overwhelmed. His emotions are, are basically about to pour out of him. And again, he said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. 
Again, that tra- that's best translated as, you know, the feelings of sorrow feel like they're going to kill me. And I think we've been there. I, I think many of us have been to the place at least where we've been so worried or upset or so emotional that it feels like just the, the tension and the pressure in your chest could make you feel like you're about to die. His anxiety is so overwhelming that he feels like it could kill him. What a raw emotional experience it must have been. What in the world could could cause Jesus to be worked up that way? Then he tells his disciples to watch. And then it says, after going a little further, I want you to notice, it says, he fell on the ground. The words fell here aren't really very ambiguous. It means he literally fell. And it indicates that that he he fell as if there was a weight on him. But like he fell to his knees. He didn't just fall to his knees in, like, in just reverent worship. He fell to his knees physically because the emotions were physically that strong. This is a striking image. If you think about Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the one who has, has calmed the storm, the one who has made you know, enough food to feed 5,000 people, the one who has raised people from the dead, that he is so emotionally distraught that he can barely physically walk and he falls down. That should cause us all to take notice. And then it says, he prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now Jesus is praying to the Father. And and, and the wording indicates there's an intimate relationship here. He's praying you know, with a very endearing term to his father. This is a close, personal, intimate relationship, and this is an intimate request, right? But notice he's praying that this cup pass from me. He's praying that, that the hour that he was born for would pass from him. He's asking that what is about to happen wouldn't have to take place. All of the Gospels confirm that that's what he's saying. This is not ambiguous here. Why? Why would Jesus pray this? Why would he ask this? This was the plan from eternity past. This was the moment that Jesus came into the world for. This is the the moment that he even predicted three times. Why would he ask this? Now some say it's because he knows that he's He's about to be tortured. And that the death on the Roman cross is a scary proposition. That it's a horrific way to die. Right? But brothers and sisters, that can't be the answer. That can't be the answer. Because historically speaking, many Christians have went to their death on a cross, no less, singing hymns of joy. Christians throughout history have gladly went to their death, Right? Because they were dying for their faith. They were dying and they counted themselves worthy to suffer along with Christ. In fact, there was once a Christian in history who having his skin flayed off of him, he was thanking the one who was tormenting him, saying, thank you because you're preparing me for the robes of righteousness I'm about to receive. Thousands of people throughout history have bravely faced death because of the hope that they have in Christ, but the king of the universe, the one on whom our hope rests, is terrified to suffer and die physically? No, that's not the answer. It's not. Jesus is not afraid of Roman cross. 
Jesus is not afraid of a beating. In fact, he's not afraid of what any human can do to him. He's not afraid of what can happen to his body by the hands of men. And in this text, we see Jesus asking God the Father to remove from him what he's about to go through. And he doesn't just pray it one time, though. He prays it three times. That's the emphasis here. Three times he asks the Lord that. And the Gospel of Luke says that he was so distressed that sweats, he's sweating drops of blood. If Jesus is not afraid of dying at the hands of men, then what is he afraid of? Why is he acting this way? Well, notice the phrase. This is the clue. He says, remove this cup from me. And any Jewish person reading this text would immediately know from the Old Testament he's talking about, about a cup that's referred to in the Old Testament over and over again. Jesus was terrified to drink of this cup. Well, what is the cup? It is the cup of God's judgment and wrath. That's what it is. It is the cup of God's wrath. That is what he was terrified of. You see, Christ in his humanity is about to face the most horrific thing that anybody in, a hu- in human form could ever face. The awful and terrible wrath of a holy and righteous and just God. That's the most terrifying thing that anybody could face at any time. The wrath of God is more terrifying than the worst kind of lingering sickness. The wrath of God is more terrifying than war. The wrath of God is more terrifying than all the rejection that you could face in this world. The wrath of God is more terrifying than torture and even death itself. In fact, death and annihilation would be a welcome blessing compared to the wrath of a holy and righteous and just God. The reason why he's troubled is because of that. He is about to experience in his body and in his, in his person the full weight of the wrath of God that all of us deserve. And being God, he understands exactly what that means. The fact of the matter is, is God is good, which means he's completely good in every possible fashion and shape. He means he's pure. It means he's holy. He's righteous. He's just. And because of that, because he is that, he cannot abide with sinful creatures. He cannot abide with us. Which means we, by our nature, are under his wrath without Christ. The Bible tells us before we were Christians, we were what? Children of what? Of wrath. And what's worse is there was no way out of that. There's nothing we could do to fix it. There's not anything we can do within ourselves to make ourselves right with God. We can't earn it. We can't sacrifice enough for it. We are truly hopeless creatures. And Paul says, Paul Washer says, the most terrifying thing about God is the fact that God is good. And the reason why that's terrifying is because we are not, which immediately puts us at odds with God. If you're not in Christ, the wrath of God hangs over your head like a weight that could drop at any moment. The wrath of God abides on all of those who reject Christ. The wrath of God is so terrifying that Jesus is emotionally distraught over it. So much so he asks God the Father, let this pass. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus, God in the flesh, was terrified of the wrath of God, so should we be. The fact is, 
we in our world have no understanding or reverence or fear of the wrath of God. That's why our culture winks at sin. It betrays the fact that we don't fully understand. We think that dying is going to be worse. We think that somehow, some way, that losing all our money is going to be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. We think that getting a divorce is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. We think that dying of cancer over a period of two and a half years is the worst possible experience. I'm going to tell you, we should be terrified to the core of our hearts of the wrath of God because Jesus was. And we should especially be terrified for those who are not saved. Because the wrath of God is upon them right now in this moment. Do you, understand? Do you realize that, right? I mean, this is something that we can't just keep winking at and thinking about. The wrath of God abides on all the people that you know who were not in Christ. The very wrath that Jesus was terrified of is waiting for them. If you have any compassion in your heart, that should, that should urge you onward to tell them about Christ. If they die in their sins apart from Christ... The wrath of God is upon them. The wrath that made Jesus sweat drops of blood and so anxious. That's why it says Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death. As a human, he does not want to have to experience the wrath of the Father. That changes everything, doesn't it? Suddenly then, what he's doing in the garden makes a whole lot more sense. But also makes what he does on the cross, even more meaningful. Because on the cross, that full weight of his wrath for those who were in Christ has been satisfied. That he bore in his body that full weight and that you then can walk free of that wrath. As the Bible says, there is therefore no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he bore the wrath of God for you. The wrath that made him terrified to the point he thought he was going to die from the emotions. As a human, he didn't want to experience that. Now it says, the turning point though in this text, it says, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus says, I don't want to do this. But that doesn't matter to me. I'm here to do your will. Christ, in the depths of his anguish, looks to the heavens and in essence says, yes, Lord. This right here for us is the true example of discipleship, by the way. Because true discipleship is just that. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means to completely surrender your will to the will of God. To go where Jesus leads you and to go where Jesus says to go. To do the things he's calling you to do. Even when you're staring at the spectacle of it costing you greatly and dearly. And the prospects of what's about to happen are terrifying to you. This, by the way, has been the crossroads and the separation between real Christians and those who aren't. Because real Christians, during times of persecution, will continue on and say, yes, Lord, knowing what it's going to cost them. But those who are falsely converted will then deny him and turn their back on Christ. And I think we're facing a, a, a time in our own country right now where this is going to become more and more applicable to our lives. It's that it's going to cost us something to follow Christ. 
And the question that we have to ask ourselves then is, will we be true disciples like the one who's going before us and say, yes, Lord, not that I, what I will, but what you will. Mark is, is a book on discipleship, and this is the epitome of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It means to surrender yourself wholly into the hand of God. But I want you to hear me. There's a reason why to, to surrender that way. Because Jesus is trusting. He's, he's trusting in God's will, even though this plan is terrifying to him. There's the rub, brothers and sisters. This is where you come and you measure yourself and find out, do you really trust the Lord? Jesus is trusting the Father, understanding that his will is what must be done. It's the greatest possible thing to be done. Right? And in spite of what he's going to go through, that God is going to raise him up, he's trusting in the fact that even though the prospects of the immediate future are terrifying and horrific, Jesus Christ is trusting in his Father. Humanly, he's trusting in the Father the way that we need to be trusting him. That's what we're called to, by the way. That's what it means to repent and believe the gospel. Repenting and believing the gospel does not, hey, all right, now you're a Christian and you say this prayer after me, now spend the rest of your life trying to follow a bunch of rules. No! It's repent of your sin and keep repenting of your sin and keep holding on to that hope that you have in Christ. No matter what the prospects are, no matter what the, what's on the horizon for you, no matter how terrifying it is, you do not stop trusting in him. You keep going where he leads you, even if it's terrifying and scary into the darkest places of the world, and you never, ever stop holding on to him. That's what it means to continue to believe. By the way, if you do that, the fruit of your life will be a growth towards holiness. You don't have to actually focus on keeping rules. You'll just change because the Holy Spirit changes you. But the understanding that we see here from Christ and what we need to apply to our lives is that, that we hold on to that hope no matter what happens and no matter what we're going through and no matter what the specter of the future holds for us, no matter who wins elections and no matter what kind of government our government ends up being and no matter what kinds of famines and resources that we lose as a result. Because our hope is not built on any of those other things. Our hope is not built on having the best life now. Our hope is not built on pain-free, problem-free life today. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the truth. And the truth that we have to embrace as brothers and sisters in Christ, the truth that we have to not allow ourselves to ignore anymore, is the fact is, Jesus is terrified because God is good. And because God is good, his justice must be done. And Jesus is standing here saying, I don't want to do this. But I'm going to because you willed it. So that my, my children can come home. That he can make brothers and sisters out of us by his blood. He's not afraid of a Roman whip. We ought not to be afraid of what the government can do to us. We ought not to be afraid of what our neighbors can do to us. We ought not to be afraid of economic crashes. We ought to be afraid of the awful, terrible wrath of Almighty God. But praise the Lord, if you're in Christ, 
that specter holds no fear for you anymore. The only fear that you ought to have is the fear for those who are not in Christ. And so we, Jesus, we see Jesus then, in light of that, not only does he then say, let your will be done, but then he wakes up the disciples and he says, time for sleep is over. See, I've been betrayed into my, uh, into my enemy's hands. Let's go. And he didn't say, let's go, like we're going to run from them. Jesus now, at this point, is going to meet him head on. He knows this is what has to happen. He's already prayed and asked the Lord to change his circumstances. He knows what the answer is, no. He then gets up and he moves forward towards what God's calling him to do. And that's where we leave this particular story this week. But with that being said, there are a few things I want to leave you with based on this text here that I couldn't give you in 20 minutes. Okay. Number one, Jesus needed a prayer, needed to pray. So do you. Right? Jesus needed to pray. So do you. Prayer is one of those things you need to carve out of your life every single day. Right? And I want you to know it's hard sometimes. Right? Because we make excuses. There's lots of things competing for your attention. Right? And especially if you have one of these devices that you don't sit on, you don't turn off or put on, like do not disturb. Right? They're distractions. They can, you know... Right? And then we have family and we have you know, you know, food and we have all the things around us. And then on top of that, we have this distraction of the coronavirus. Who's sick? Who's not sick? Oh my goodness, am I going to get it? Should I do this? Should I do that? Right? There's just so many things. And before you know it, you can go, I didn't even pray today. Brothers and sisters, we had to carve out that time. We've got to make that a priority. If Jesus needed to be in prayer, so do you. So do I. Number two, Jesus needed to be, if he needed to be in fellowship, so do you. Right? And I'm going to tell you, like, this, this technology thing, praise the Lord for that, and that we're able to connect with people because, you know, sometimes people are afraid or they're sick at home, and we want them to stay home if they're sick, for sure. But there's a growing sense in America and also in our own community that this is a good substitute for church and for fellowship, and brothers and sisters, it's not. It's not. You can watch lots and lots of sermons Right, online, and that's great, and you should, but that is not a substitute for public corporate worship. There's something that you, you cannot get at home doing that that you get here. Just it's, it's impossible. We need each other. We need fellowship. And beyond that, we need to be with each other outside of this too. Right? We all have been surrounded by, by secular people. We need to be surrounded by more Christian people to strengthen us and urge us on. By the way, that's why I praise the Lord for the women's group that continue to get together and love on each other. Number three, if Jesus was terrified by the wrath of God, we should be too. Now, we should be terrified for a different reason. We shouldn't be terrified for the fact that we have to face that because we can walk confidently in what Romans says. Again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we should be terrified for those who don't know him because that's the specter of what they're facing. As lovely as they are and as much as we don't want to even like upset them or offend them or hurt their feelings, at some point... We're not loving them if we're not telling them, I'm sorry, but you got to hear me, right? If you're not in Christ, you are in trouble, right? If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is, this, is, is God in the flesh, then you're not a believer, right? If you're not trusting in him for your salvation alone, then you don't belong to him. And the specter, what awaits you is horrific. I don't want that for you. Please repent and believe the gospel. Now, the point I want you to hear on me on that is your job isn't to beat them up till they finally confess it. 
right? Your job is to sow the seed, love the people, right? pray that God changes their hearts and not give up on them. That's your job. Let God do the rest. But ultimately, we still need to sow the seed. And then the fourth and the final one that I want you to walk away with, and I think this is probably the best application for us, is this. Jesus trusted God even when his plan for him was terrifying. Jesus trusted the Father completely, even with the specter of what's going to happen is terrifying. And so should you. What you need to realize is if you are in Christ, then no weapon formed against you shall prosper. There's nothing that can befall you that can take you out of his hands. That the greatest problem you're ever going to face has already been satisfied. And no matter what happens in this life will never change the hope that you have in him. That right there, brothers and sisters, is why we can carry on in difficult times. It's because the promises of God are immutable, and that's what we're holding on to. So that way, when things get harder, we don't have to shrink back. And when they press in on us and, and ask us to renounce the name of Christ, we say, I can't do that. Because I know who holds tomorrow. We need to trust God, even when his plan for you even what he's ordained for you is terrifying to you. And the reason for that is because Jesus did. These are the lessons I think we can take away from this text today. And this, I know that I joked about short messages, but I just don't know how, I don't know how we leave not talking about these things. Because to me, this is the important stuff. Brothers and sisters, if I feel you so full of just goodness and joy and make you feel better about yourself and send you out of here, I'm cheating you. What you need to hear is these things. What I need to hear is these things. Our hope is centered on nothing more than Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and what he did in the garden and then ultimately on the cross. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.